Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. And man, what a treat we've got today. I have got the rebel lion of the sales rebellion. He's a coach. He's a trainer. uh, Just a fantastic guy. You can find him on LinkedIn at Joshua W. Deshay. And I would highly recommend going there and connecting with him. He puts out videos, great content all the time. But right now, He's here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Josh Deshay. Josh, man, how you doing today, brother? Man, I'm, I'm blessed. How are you? Dude, I'm excited for our conversation. I, I, I have, uh, I've been anxious for this, for this day for a good while. Josh, we're in some unusual times right now with this pandemic, and you're, you're helping people from all over the world right now kind of hone in on some things and you've had people come to you in varying situations what's the biggest thing that you're hearing from folks that are reaching out to you right now how they're dealing with this COVID-19 pandemic I think um so right now is a little different than what it was a couple of months ago a couple of months ago it was you know how people get when there's uncertainty there's panic there's disillusionment there's um extra stress. So a couple of months ago, they were reaching out to us and it was, I don't know what to do. What do we do? Help me, help me, help me. It's a little different now. I think people are, they're not getting the hang of it necessarily, but they're starting to understand that this is, this may be part of life for a while. And so people are reaching out to us right now with this idea that, look, if this is the new quote unquote norm, whatever that means, how do we manage this? How do we go through these waters? I've, I've always, as a salesperson, you know, they've always gone door to door. Well, for a while, we, they had talked about how do we um, go out and during this time do business differently. Now, the, the discussion is more about how do we do business differently, mm. right? There's no more caveat about, you know, in the next couple of months, how do we make it better? It's, hey, this is probably how it's going to be for a long time. What should we do in order to stay viable and stay open? And um, that's what I'm seeing quite a bit. Luckily, right now, we're not seeing as much. I'm not seeing as much angst or stress like I was before. People are kind of resigned. Um, Whether that's a good or bad thing, I think we can debate. But um, it is a little different than a couple of months ago. Well, and Josh, the, the thing about it is, is, is that things are ever changing and, and people should be used to that in business and sales because nothing stays the same in sales. Your market's always changing or your customer base is always changing. Why is it that, that you think that people are all of a sudden feeling that panic when as salespeople, we should be used to, to ever changing situations? Well, I think, so first of all, situations change, but processes changing is a different story. So you think about it, a process is something that we, it's tried and true, we've worked it, we've worked it, we've, 
you know, figured out the nuances and we go to market with a process for selling our product. Mm -hmm. And that process should be able to cut through different situations that arise in, in the environment around. Um, so to me, one of the big reasons that people are, have been so flustered is that their process for the longest time has been wrong. So that's been the issue is that they've had the incorrect process and what it took was the pandemic to actually show them what they should have already seen. And so what, I, what do I mean by that? In sales, and we've, you and I have talked about this, for the last several decades, you know, people have seen sales through the eyes of Alec Baldwin's character in Glengarry Glen Ross. I mean, how many sales trainers and sales coaches and sales leaders have you heard say, ABC, always be closing? And so they've taken that and turned that one saying into these entire sales training methodologies. And what people have to realize is that that was never meant to be taken as literal. It was satirical. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, Alec Baldwin has talked in, in um, interviews that he's done that that character was meant to be a satire on the business environment of that time, mm -hmm. right? The, early 90s in that time, late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, where you had people who were just insane going out and telling salespeople to do whatever it took to sell something. But people grasped onto that because it sounded cool. ABC, always be closing. And so they built methodologies around it, which, which included cold calling until you fell down. It included smiling and dialing. It included overcoming every single objection known to man. And what that over-promising and under-delivering. Right. Over-promising. Because here's the it, thing, man. I, I wanted to jump in there because I want to go back and, and, and literally smack the daylights out of, out of sales trainers that use that satirical line, always be closing. Mm -hmm. Because that is so anti what a great salesperson should do. And it's the antithesis of, of where salespeople need to be. I would take that C out and say, always be connecting because your customers, their needs are changing and they want to feel like they're a part of the process. But Josh, it just feels like with, with, with that scenario that you mentioned, it's like, okay, well, we have the right script. And if you don't do this, you're going to be a failure when the, the process is a failed process to begin with. Well, exactly. Because again, what we know is this, that whether it's 1960 or it's 2020, relationships are what sell. And people will say that that's not accurate. You'll have people out there who have pushed this notion that I just have to call hundreds of people and eventually the numbers work out. Well, okay, yes, if I throw a bunch of spaghetti against the wall, one piece is going to stick. But is it worth the stain that you have on the wall afterwards? And so, yes, if I make hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of calls, I'm going to get a sale. But that's at the expense of my career. I'm going to quit like most salespeople do. That's why most salespeople are in a job for 18 months. And after 12 months, they have a foot out the door. So then you're spending money on someone who isn't all in. Then you're spending money every 18 months to hire someone else. And so whether it's that or the fact that we have become 
happy with an average closing percentage of 18 to 20%, which by the way, in any other industry, in any other form, 20% doesn't cut it. If you win 20% of your games in football or baseball, you're fired. If you bat 200 in the majors, you're sent back down to the minors. It doesn't matter. In any industry, 20% is a failure, yet in sales, we've seen that as success. Well, why? Well, because we were working in a volume-based um, environment and volume-based is not what people want. What people want and what this pandemic is helping some people to start realizing, people want genuine connection. You said connection. They want genuine communication and they want you to understand what it is they want. And you can't do that by spending eight hours a day making 100 calls. You can do that by spending eight hours a day making 20 calls that are worthwhile, that build relationships, that help you sell today, but also allow you to build what we at the Sales Rebellion call a living pipeline so that you're consistently selling throughout the year. So what I'm seeing right now are people finally coming to this conclusion that I was having such a hard time even before the pandemic doing all this, making all these calls. We couldn't keep sales teams intact. We're spending too much money training new people. Um, it was burning our brand. Yeah. And now you're starting to people see finally this idea that, okay, is there a different way, Josh? And if so, please tell us. And that's what the sales rebellion is getting a ton of right now. Well, Josh, it reminds me as you were talking. So I grew up a lifelong Cincinnati Bengals fan and, and you know, God help me. I, it's just, you can't <laughs> help your raising. Uh, sorry, but man. I remember the 1992 draft. The Bengals drafted a guy named David Klingler. Played at the University of Houston. And Klingler was a Heisman Trophy winner because yep. in the system that he was in, he put up ungodly numbers. And they threw it all over the field. And, and he had all these touchdown passes and all these yards. And they're like, oh, man, guy's got a big arm and things like that. But when he took what he knew to the next level or tried to take it to the next level, it didn't work because – his coaching was flawed. His process was flawed. And after about three or four years, the Bengals brought back Boomer Esiason, the guy that they jettisoned to bring David Klingler in because he couldn't cut it. And so when you were talking about that, man, that reminded me, if you're going to go to the next level, you better be sure that you have a real good foundation and a good set of processes that you can duplicate and replicate that's going to be just as successful anywhere you go sell. Well, and here's where I'm going to take that story right there. So David Klingler playing in the run and shoot in the old Southwest Conference. So, by the way, David Klingler physically had all the tools. No question. Big, strong, strong arm, smart guy, nice guy. Um, teammates liked him. What would have happened if David Klingler would be in today's NFL? David Klingler would probably thrive because you're talking about the air raid is now in the NFL. You have Cliff Kingsbury running the Texas Tech offense in, in Arizona. And Klingler by the way, would this be year – Pat Mahomes. He would be Pat Mahomes right now. Well, and he would, but right? And so the, the idea there is, one, that we have to be willing as sales leaders – to do what the Cincinnati, Cincinnati Bengals and the NFL back then wasn't willing to do, which was evolve and change dependent upon the talent around us. But also understand that 
you can change and evolve, but your basic concept of the system has to be one that is maneuverable and it works and it actually hits what it is that people are trying to get. So when you talk about a system, right, in sales, the constants are always that trust is what someone needs in order to buy. Trust in the product, trust in the salesperson, trust in a process, right? Trust in advertising, whatever. It's got to be trust for someone to want to buy it. Well, if you don't, if that's the foundation of almost everything, then what's needed to build trust, a relationship. Now, sometimes that's the ability to build a relationship quickly, which sometimes we have to do in sales. But whatever it is, if you forego the relationship, you don't have the trust. And therefore, your closing percentage is going to be low. It's going to have to be a volume-based business. So conversely, if we will teach people how to communicate, if we will teach people how to care, genuinely care, be kind, be empathetic, listen to people when they talk, if we teach people how to have actual conversations with, with others without jettisoning them off immediately when they say they're not interested right now, if we teach people that, you know what, maybe the goal of this meeting is not a sale. The goal of this meeting is to get another meeting because we know eventually if they do enough meetings with us, they're going to buy from us. Mm -hmm. If we make some of those changes now, all of a sudden we start to thrive in an environment where many people right now are saying it's the end of the sales world. COVID-19 was a, wasn't just a slap in the face to business in sales. COVID-19 was 1989 Mike Tyson punching us in the nose, right? It, it was so, it's been so impactful that if you didn't have the right stance, there was no way you were getting back up. And so the idea now is to make sure people understand the need to build up community, to build relationships, that build trust, that allow us to sell in an environment that is increasingly hostile to people who are trying to sell bases on volume instead of based upon relationship. Man, I love what you said about Tyson because my mind goes back 30 years ago to, to a fight that changed boxing, and that was the Tyson-Douglas fight in Japan. And Buster Douglas walks into that fight, Josh, and, and this was a guy, if you read the story of Buster Douglas, he came from nothing. He clawed and scratched a lot like Tyson did. But when Tyson got to that level, you know, he was married to Robin Givens, who was an actress mm -hmm. at that time. And, man, Buster Douglas, he was there to end Mike Tyson. He, he had no fear. And I yeah. think if, if we as salespeople or business leaders, that's the biggest thing that I see right now is there are a lot of leaders in government and business that are leading with fear. And you got to have that Buster Douglas mentality of, okay, if he punches me in the face, I'm gonna if I punch him back, nobody punches Mike Tyson back. If I punch him back, I'm gonna mess with his head. And then what happened? Douglas knocked him out. Nobody had knocked Tyson out. He was right. you know, Mike Tyson was the guy on the Nintendo game punching out everybody. Yeah. And and so, man, I love that analogy. I want to pivot here for just a minute. You have got such an interesting story and background, and that's why I really wanted to have you on the Intentional Encourager podcast because, man, your story is powerful, where you came from and, and what you've gone through and gotten to. Um, take me back, and, man, as far as you want to go back, 
take me back through your story and take the audience back through your story of how you got from point A to point B, where you are today. Yeah. So in short, by the way, the story is one of grace uh, because of the, the relationship that I finally embraced with Jesus. Because it wasn't when I finally met Jesus that I that life changed. Obviously, life changed internally and I was saved, but I was still doing the stupid ass stuff that a non-Christian would do. You know, I eventually understood and, and with the help of some friends that you and I have in common, um, Al, Al Robertson in particular, of understanding that. Who has been a guest this, on this podcast, by the way? Yes. And, and again, we love Al. I, again, Al is, has been a central figure in my life um, in times that he knows about and then in times that he doesn't know. Um, but I eventually accepted the relationship with Jesus and it changed my life. And so it really starts back, you know, I, I was born to a couple of, uh, of hippie parents. <laughs> they, uh, back in the, in the mid seventies, they, my parents moved to Austin, Texas. Um, I was born in Austin, Texas. Um, my dad was the first general manager for half price books in Austin. Um, it was the very first half price books actually in the United States at that point. And my mom did data entry for a doctor's office. Um, my dad had finished the University of Texas with, a, with an English degree, but you can't do much with an English degree. So he went and did that at the bookstore. My mom did not finish school. Um, I was born, we had very little money. Um, my, younger, two, my two younger brothers, uh, one of them is Jesse. He was born in, a couple of years later. And then Corey, who's about 10 years younger than me. Um, you talk, you know, not poverty like you have in some parts of the world, but we were poor. Um, and we were in, in, in difficult parts of the Austin area. I think I can count 12 or 13 houses between the ages zero and 13. Um, you know, just renting, renting every year, sometimes being kicked out for not paying, whatever that was. Eight years old, the, the biggest moment of my life at that point happened where I was raped by an older gentleman at a party of, that my dad took me to. Um, didn't tell any of my family or friends about that actually until four years ago when I was 40. Hid that away. Um, I can see a lot of things that I struggle with throughout my life coming from that. But again, not an excuse. Um, let, turn let me, eight. Let me, let me ask you this. I've got, to, I've got to jump in there and ask this, yeah. Josh, because from eight to 40, how are you dealing with that, that story that you know? How, how are you internalizing it? Obviously, you, were, you got married during that time. I don't want to fast forward too much. Yeah. But, but someone like myself, I've not been in that position. How do you internalize it? And what were the repercussions to you from that, that time at eight until the time of 40 when you finally told your story about that? I don't think, so by the way, whether it happens to someone who's eight or 40 or 60, it's always terrible, right? It's always a terrible. No question. No question. The hard part about it for someone that's a child is that the child tends to, at least for me and other people that I've talked to, the, the child doesn't deal with it. The child puts it to the side. The child 
actually at certain points forgets about it um, because whether it's because of fear or embarrassment or something like that, the, the kid, kids are very resilient, much more resilient than you and I are. <laughs> um, kids, and, and what, what ends up happening is they end up internalizing, at least I did, and it ends up manifesting itself in many different things, right? In addictions, um, in, you know, behavioral or, or mood swings. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was, I'm going to hide this because we live in a world at that point, right, in the um, early 80s, where, one, you wonder, am I homosexual? Did this happen because of that? Did this happen because I deserved it? Did this happen because some God out there, which we didn't believe in God at that point? Is that why that happened? Um, and then there's the huge embarrassment. I mean, again, you're an eight-year-old boy. You're coming into those formative years for a boy where you start realizing, I'm a, I'm a guy. You know, and I'm a guy, and this is not supposed to happen to me. And so, therefore, if someone else knows about this, holy crap, what's going to happen at school? What are my parents going to think? They're never going to let me out of their sight. Are they going to blame it on me? Uh, and so, there's all these things that go through. So, how do you deal with it? One, you don't deal with it. You don't at all. You put it to the side. You pretend like it's not there. And as an eight-year-old, the other scary thing for kids is you can't see how it's manifesting in other ways. If this happens to a 40 or 60 year old, as terrible as it is, you can then see things that start to happen and understand where that comes from. As an eight year old, you're still learning how to be a person. And so all of a sudden it just happens. And those things that start manifesting in your life, it's just who you are, which is sad because it's not who you are. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the best way I can answer that question. Um, so, you know, you fast forward at that point, um, into my, you know, middle school years, which for everybody, middle school is terrible. <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 middle school kids are absolutely the biggest creeps on the face of the earth. I don't care who they are. Um, so it's just terrible. But then you get into high school and you start to find your own. Then my dad goes to prison for six months when I'm a senior or at the end of my senior year, beginning of my freshman year in college. And so I initially go off to the University of Texas at San Antonio on a vocal performance scholarship. I get a job at Fiesta Texas actually singing in the shows. Fiesta Texas is a Six Flags um, theme park in San Antonio. It's right across the freeway from the school. Uh, but I quit. I left and came home to take care of mom And when, when dad went to prison. Um, inside prison, my dad found God um, in the prison ministry. And he would write me these letters and say, hey, when I get back, I, this, I want us to go to church. And, of course, in my mind, with everything that's happened in our lives, I'm going, you're full of shit. No. This is ridiculous, right? And, and by the way, at this point, I'm fully into addiction and porn, pornography, um, you know, and, and those sort of things. So I see all these things, and I'm like, you're ridiculous. There's no way. So he gets out. They start going to church. Um, it was a Church of Christ in Round Rock, Texas. My little brother comes to me right before Easter, and I believe it was in 1995, and yeah, it was in 95. So Easter of 95 before that says, Hey, you need to come Josh. And I said, I'm not going there. He goes, no, there's pretty girls there. <laughs> and I said, all right, I'll go. And so I went and it's funny how God works that, uh, six weeks later I got baptized. And it's interesting because I think from that point, six weeks later, I'm baptized a couple of months later, a great friend of mine and someone that Al and the Robertsons know really well, Howard, um, 
invited me to come and be a camp counselor at this camp in West Monroe or in Monroe, Louisiana, in Calhoun actually, called Camp Chioka. So I'm 19, I'm a new Christian, I really don't know what it's about yet. Um, I'm being thrust now into teaching this. I still have all these issues going on in my head with addictions and, and with, uh, you know, basically a liar as a 19 year old going all the way back to the age of eight, right? And so I'm a liar, I'm addicted to pornography, um, I can't stop eating sweets and other stuff. I mean, just all these issues. Go out there and, and meet the Robertsons. Meet a, a great friend of mine now that I love. His name is Zach. And I, I meet these people. And even though I'm still basically a scumbag <laughs> at that point, you have people who can see it in me and still love me, even if I'm trying to hide it. And it, it changed my life out there. So anyway. I want to I ask you this because people see the public impact of the Robertson family through Duck Dynasty. And I've had multiple occasions on, on another platform that I do from time to time in live radio. Had a chance to interview Phil Robertson several times. Uh, you know, Al connected the two of us together through, through that. And so, you know, knowing Al and knowing a little bit about their family, what is the constant from when you first met them to today that hasn't changed? Because there's a lot of things about their family that has changed. You know, obviously they weren't reality TV stars then. They weren't famous. They weren't yeah. a, a lot of things. But what's the one constant that, that hasn't changed about their family? So one thing I'll, I will say this. To me, the, the first time I ever met Al Robertson, he was famous. And it wasn't about being famous to everybody else, but Al has a way of speaking that pushes you yet draws you in at the same time. You know, because he's got this ability to, t Al's not Jesus. Al's had his struggles. One of the things that we love about Jesus, especially in, in the, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, is his ability to tell 100% truth while being 100% empathetic and loving. There's, there's not one or the other, right? And as Christians, we tend to struggle with that. We have times where it's 100% truth and we forget about grace and we forget about love. And then there's other times where we do 100% grace and we don't preach the way we should. To me, Al was always that perfect blend of truth and honesty and compassion and relationship. And so to me, Al was always famous to me. I, I loved Al from the first conversation we had. I said, this is someone I need to know forever. Same and, here. Um, Same here. I, I, I talked to him and Lisa seven years ago, an interview that I did. And, <clears throat> and from, I, I, you just can't help but fall. And, and I'll tell you something about Al that, that I love, man is that when he's speaking, you're right. Al is connecting with everybody in the room, and the people in the room don't know that Al's connecting with them. Yeah. But, but he's talking to them individually, and, and Al can talk to you eloquently about LSU football just as eloquently as he can talk. And I've told him, I said, look, man, you, you can talk about anything. You've got that gift and that ability to just 
pick things that are going to connect with people and you can just go with it. And by the way, he would be totally, he would be totally embarrassed about this discussion right here. He'd be like, Josh, Josh, come on, come on. Let's, let's stop talking about this. Let's stop talking about this right now. We got better things to talk about. No, but you're absolutely right. And so again, I have to say that, but what is it about, (laughs) it's, it's funny with, with those, with them, I, uh, I mean, I, I, Jess, Willie, I love Willie and I love Corey. And um, I didn't know Jace in Louisiana. Um, but, and, and, and I, I knew Phil and Kay, but not like Al. Al was it for me. And when I, I, I eventually moved out there for, for a little while and Al was it. And Al saw me struggle living out there, struggle struggle with relationships and with people and with my own addictions and with my own enemies, you know, in, internally. And, but he was always there. And, and so to me, that was such a huge impact in my life. And he, you know, even up until, you know, four or five years ago, my wife and I had major issues, major issues. And I left the house for, for about a week. I, I was kicked out of the house for about a week. And the first person I contact is out. And, you know, Al did what he does. He got on to me, but it was 100% truth and it was 100% love. You know, they, he and, he and um, Lisa sent me their devotional. And Al, every step of the way since, I've been, since I was 19 years old has been someone who God put in my life for a reason. And so I'll always be um, in debt to Al Robertson. So he is, yeah, uh, he is absolutely he's a dear friend to both of ours. And and I tell people all the time, I say, look, you know, the thing about Al, he's genuine. You know, you, you see him, uh, he and I were in his hotel room in Winston-Salem a couple years ago and -hmm. just sitting talking and just, you know, we were just watching TV and, and just talking between the two of us. And he's that kind of guy, you know, when you think back to that time, Josh, when you were, were in West Monroe and things like that, what was the biggest thing that you took away from that experience? Because that was your first time moving away from home, right? That was the first time yeah. you being that far away. What was the thing that you took away from that experience the most? That's a good question. Um, I think that what I – Really, if I look back at that time now, at 44 years old, it was an absolute disaster being there. I mean, it was an absolute disaster. I wasn't ready to be on my own. I couldn't really afford it. I didn't have a degree. So, you know, you know, different jobs all over the place, uh, living in different people's houses or apartments. I remember living in, a, in an apartment with a guy who I guarantee I still owe money to. What an amazing guy. And uh, Brian, if you're, if you're listening to this, I love you. And I appreciate everything you did for me when I was 19. Let me move into his apartment. I don't think I ever even paid him. Um, but I think that I, by the way, I look back at that time and it was a disaster. I wasn't ready for that. Um, now, I, I thank God that it was there as opposed to somewhere where Al wasn't there, where the White Spirit Road Church wasn't there. Those people um, are really special to me. So but outside of that, I learned how to destroy relationships out there. I mean, again, I'm 19. I have been, I've been baptized. That's why I told you 
I was not good at this. I had, I, I found Jesus, but I hadn't really allowed Jesus to lead at that point. And so I'm out there, I'm a Christian, but I'm just not doing Christian things. And, um, and there are still, I guarantee I can go there and there are still a lot of people that I know and love out there and we'll go and have lunch and that sort of thing. But there's still probably quite a few people out there who they would see me and go, ah, there's Josh. And so what, you know, one of the biggest things I think that I think is a teaching point that I can use for my kids and other people is to understand that you don't need a lot of time in any one place to make an impact on the people that are around either positively or negatively. Mm -hmm. And so remember that, that while we're all going places and trying to leave impacts, realize that you're going to leave an impact regardless. Just make sure that it's not a negative impact because that's, those are people that you may never get back. And so for me, that's, and it's sad to say that, but outside of my relationship with Al, I have a couple of really great friends, Brandon and Brian Lynch, who I've always loved, and they were out there, um, you know, outside of people like that, it was a miserable failure. <laughs> and one of many over the next 12, 13 years. You come back to Austin, I assume, from, from that experience. Yes. And, and now what happens to Josh? Because, um, you know, you, you, you've, you've had some time away and now you come home. What was that like? And, and what, were the, what, were, what was the next step for you in your journey? Well, so the way I got back, I mean, one of my very good dear friends, I'm still friends with him now. Um, we've been friends since I was 14 years old. He, uh, his, his mom passed away. And so I came back home for the, for the funeral to be with him and be with his family. And at that point, I decided I'm moving back. So, you know, I come back, um, start going to church there again, um, you know, at the, at the church that, that I was baptized in. And I'm just trying to live at that point. You know, again, I'm 19, 20, um, you know, going on 21, but I'm, I still have no real direction. Um, going to church. So that's good. But I'm yep. still not really hearing it, not really seeing God, not really living the way that I should be living. I'm doing better because now I'm in, a, in an environment that I know and it's controlled and I can hide things better. But um, I, I go get a, you know, it's just a random string of useless part-time jobs. Um, I get to a point where um, I am at, I'm 20, 23 and yeah so it's it goes a couple of years i meet my future wife so they moved to uh round rock texas where we live which is just north of austin um and they have it's a family of five they've got uh, two two daughters and a, and a younger son and um actually and this is the funny part of that story i don't date allison allison's young she's six years younger than me so she's too young for me to date. She's seven, 16 or whatever at that point. But I, I start dating the older sister. And, and so I'm dating, dating the older sister, and it doesn't work out. And I get a call six months later. From, That's pretty West Virginian, dude, dating your sister-in-law. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, most, yeah. People, most people that, you know, most people that, that's like, well, you know, plan A, at least up here, plan A, and then plan, you know, they call their future sister-in-law plan B. <laughs> well, so, yeah, so, I mean, it didn't work out. 
we stopped dating, but six months after we kind of break up and stop dating, get this call and it's Allison, my future wife, her, the, the younger sister there. And she's turned, she's 17. She's still at that point, I think too young. And she wants to know if I want to go see a movie. And I say, no, at this point, her sister now is dating my friend. And so they're pushing me to date this younger girl. And I'm like, no, 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 it's, it's too much. No, no, no. And then eventually it clicks. Something clicks and God says, this is it. This is who you're going to be with. And I remember we finally go out on a date and, um, you know, she's 18 at this point. So I don't feel like weird going on a date and, uh, kiss her goodnight. And it's, it's interesting, you know, so many times when you're dating and you're a single guy and that happens and you're leaving and you're going home. And a lot of times you're thinking, Oh, that was stupid. I shouldn't have done it. And I remember, I remember this distinctly. That was the first time I ever kissed someone where I didn't think that mm -hmm. it was like, that was what I was supposed to do. This is, this is right. And we were married in 2001. So I had, was about to turn um, 25 and, um, it was uh, 19 years, almost 19 years since. So anyway, yeah, that's, I mean, my story in a nutshell, we have four kids now, all the way up to 16, all the way as young as four. Um, my wife is a wedding planner in Georgetown, Texas, which is just north of Austin. Mm -hmm. And I do sales coaching, obviously training and business consulting. And it's I, been a journey. I've got a couple more questions for you, man. You've been so good with your time. Yeah, man. I want to throw one name out here to you, right. Dale Dupree. Uh, yeah, Dale. Dale is uh, so the way that I feel about Al is a very similar way I feel about Dale. And Dale, for full disclosure, Dale's a friend of both of ours. Dale's been on the Intentional Encourager podcast, uh, just like this conversation, man. We had a powerful conversation. Go back and listen to that one as well as as when Al was on here, not to, not to name drop, but tell me about Dale's influence in your life. Yeah. It, it, it's funny to say it too, because I'm 10 years older than Dale and uh, I'm the old guy now. <laughs> well, how do you Dale, think I feel, dude? I'm, I'm four years older than you. <laughs> oh, why do I have more gray hair then? What is that about? Uh, um, because I, I, I've learned how to hide mine pretty well. <laughs> right. Well, so Dale, um, Dale has this unique ability to do what Al does, which is Dale, he's not perfect. Al isn't either. He would be, Alan Robertson would be the first one to tell you he's not perfect. <clears throat> far from it. Dale is not perfect, far from it. But they both have this, that unique ability, again, to speak directly to you, even though he's talking to a thousand people. The, he has the, I, I don't remember the last time I didn't hear Dale talk and go on one of his Dale rants, where I didn't get goosebumps. Um, there's something about the delivery, something about the acceptance and the transformation of his life in his life in Christ, something about his disregard for what other people think about him when it comes to his faith and the things that he believes in. And then something about his innate goodness. There's this thing inside of him that 
makes him want to be good to people who don't, we don't feel as though deserve to be treated that way. And so Dale, Dale's a phenomenal guy. Um, also, if people don't know, he's the leader of the sales rebellion, the, the org that I do sales coaching and training for. Dale's a remarkable guy. And uh, don't ever let him hear me say that because you know, I just don't want his head to get. Yeah, me bitter. neither. Me neither. You know, um, <laughs> but no, Dale Dupree um, has quickly become one of my best friends. And um, I love doing life with him. Yeah, man, that's that's so good. I, and I and I agree. I'll shoot him text from time to time and um, or shoot him Will Ferrell gifs, you know, like shake and bake <laughs> or, you know, just absolutely. Just just something like that. Josh, take me, and, and you may have already hit on this, but what was one of the biggest obstacles? Maybe we didn't talk about it, but what's one of the biggest obstacles that you overcame in your life, and, and what was the lesson you learned from it? Well, I do have to preface it by saying I really haven't overcome anything. And God has led me through situations as I've led him. Um, anytime that I've actually tried to overcome something by myself, I've failed miserably. So I know, I understand what you're saying, but I do want to make sure that I reiterate that, that I just, I, I suck without Jesus. I just, I do. Um, as far as life, I think <clears throat> I, from a standpoint of where I am right now with my faith and where my family is with their faith to me coming from a family that didn't know God as I grew up coming from a family that scoffed at that to seeing where not only are we are, but my parents are to me, that's by the way, remarkable. And if that's an overcoming of a, of a situation, then I'll say that I, I think everything else in life, right? I mean, whatever happened to me at eight or, you know, things that happened to me when I was 40. Um, I don't feel as though I've had to overcome them. Right. I feel as though they are, they've been parts of my life that God has walked me through, whether I knew he was doing it or not. And that's one thing I, I hope people understand too, that at eight years old, I didn't know God, but that didn't mean God didn't know me. Mm -hmm. And what happened to me when I was eight should never happen to anyone ever. But God was with me, and God loved me, and God loves or loved the person who did that to me. And that when I start to think about that from, from, you know, thinking about my life and my story and things that I've overcome, I, I just, I can't even grasp or comprehend that how I am deserving of that kind of love, how anyone is deserving of that kind of love, how someone as terrible as that person when I was eight, I can look back and know that person, all that person would have to do is say, I love you, Jesus, and, and I repent, and I believe you're the son of God, and that person has eternal life with him. That's an amazing kind of love. And so I don't think, to answer your question, I don't think I've overcome anything. What I've done is accepted the love that was freely given to me before I ever even knew it. And it doesn't mean that I'm perfect now. I'm far from it. It doesn't mean that I don't screw up all the time, because I do. But it means that I know and understand that 
when Jesus died on that cross that I was forgiven of my sins, past, present, and future. And I'll tell you what, there's no other place I'd rather be living than in that. And if anybody listening right now doesn't know Jesus, please reach out to me. Reach out to, to Brian. Reach out to someone. If you yeah. hate the story of Jesus and want to rip me a new one for preaching it, please reach out to me. And I'll me let too. you do that. Me too. Um, me too, I, absolutely. I, 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 I just can't understand how I have what I have now. And it's, it's an amazing blessing. It's hard for me to, to say it any other way. You know, Josh, I was thinking about when you were talking there. It doesn't matter at the cross, everybody's equal. It doesn't matter if, if, if you're famous or infamous. It doesn't matter if you're, if, you, if you're the richest man in the world or the richest person in the world, or you literally just have the clothes on your back. Everybody comes to, to the cross equally. Black, white, Asian, Jew, whatever. Everybody comes there equally. And I, I'll, yes. that was great. That was so good what you said there. Last thing I want to ask you, what is your biggest piece of intentional encouragement that you would leave as we close out this episode today? I think I would say that whether you're a – a rookie salesperson, or an old grizzled veteran, whether you are a single mom or, or a, a married mother of, of four, whether you are in, you know, Africa, Australia, Russia, Europe, North America, Jesus knows you already. Jesus loves you already. Jesus wants the best for you. Jesus wants to have a relationship with you. And that he wants to have not only have a relationship with you, but he wants to have a relationship with your entire family tree from now, from this point forward. And that the great thing about that for anyone listening is that it doesn't matter what happened in the past, that you're not the sum of past mistakes, that you are the sum of his love. And to me, that's such an amazing thing to, to, to try to grasp and understand. And if there's not a, if there's a better encouragement out there than to know someone loves you regardless of anything you've ever done or said, then I don't know what there is. Man, what a, what a great way to end our conversation. Josh Deshay, invite folks to connect with you on your different social media platforms. Yeah, they, so the best way is LinkedIn. We're all on LinkedIn. Um, I'm linkedin.com forward slash Joshua W. Deshay. You can also find, I've got a, a LinkedIn showcase page. Just type in Joshua Deshay, the rebel lion. Um, or if you want to put them all together, the rebellion, right? Rebel lion, rebellion, it's the same thing. Um, find me on Twitter, the Joshua Deshay. Um, I'm not there a whole lot. I got to do better there, but Find me on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to talk to you and pray with you and chat with you. Tell you about transformative sales coaching and training through the rebellion. We'd be happy to pray for you. Anything that it is you need, we will be there for you. And the foremost expert on Tom Herman in Texas football. Well, yeah, I would say that that's probably accurate. <laughs> um, I would say that um, Tom Herman um, may not have a chance this year to actually uh, – show his coaching prowess 
Um, so hopefully that changes. But yes, UT football, hook them horns. If there's a if there's a bigger UT fan on the planet, I don't I don't know him, but I do know this guy Josh Deshay, and man, what a, what a great uh, what a great conversation this has been, Josh. By the way, Deshay spelled D E S H A. Don't make the same mistake I did and mispronounce <laughs> it and have to be corrected by the Rebel Lion here on it's air. Jo- yeah, uh, Joshua W. Deshay, <laughs> D-E-S-H-A. And, uh, yes. man, Josh, what, what a great conversation, brother. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate you being on the Intentional Encourager podcast. I appreciate you, my friend. My thanks, as always, to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Meads. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ, who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. And until next time, remember, everyone, everywhere, at any time, and any place, can be an intentional.